Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, that is the text for this morning. The title of the message is The King's Parade. And again, our our text this morning probably brings us to what is subtitled in your Bible, The Triumphal Entry. The Triumphal Entry. The events in Mark chapter 11 set into motion the the very final hours of Jesus' life. We've seen Jesus' earthly life winding down now for for a number of weeks as Jesus has fixed his face like flint toward Jerusalem. But we are now in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Remember, for three years, Jesus has crisscrossed Israel, uh, preaching the gospel, healing diseases and sickness, uh, performing miracles, signs, and wonders. Jesus has foretold of his death on numerous occasions, three previous occasions. No one understood him. They couldn't get their minds around him. Not even his closest followers, his disciples, really understand what's going on in God's redemptive program at this point. They will shortly after the cross. Every single step of Jesus' life has been pointing to the events of this final week in which he, Jesus, would publicly ride into the capital city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, be crucified four days later on Passover, literally fulfilling every single Old Testament prophecy concerning his life and his death, and on the third day, rise from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That is the captain of our salvation. He is the one whom we follow. All right? And so with that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I want to encourage you to stand if you have the ability. We don't stand to garner God's attention or to gain his favor. We have that already in Jesus. We just stand as a public proclamation that God, your word is authoritative. God, your word is sovereign. And we acknowledge it. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and these are the words that he pens. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he, Jesus, sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat. If you have your outline out and handy this morning, and I hope that you do, you'll find three blanks on your outline. Uh, What you have in front of you this morning uh, are the three movements or the three scenes in the text this morning. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. Number one on your outline is this, preparation for the parade. 
preparation for the parade. This is verses 1 through 7, as Jesus and his disciples, the entourage in tow, are nearing Jerusalem. They're nearing Jerusalem. And we talked last week why Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. We answered that question. Why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem? Why has everything uh, since Caesarea Philippi been focused on Jerusalem? Well, the reason behind that is that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. To celebrate the Passover. Remember, Passover was the annual celebration in which Jewish people commemorated the fact, celebrated the fact that God had liberated them in history from Egyptian slavery. It was a celebration that God had freed his people from Israel's heavy-handed bondage. You'll find those events recorded back in Exodus chapter 12. I would encourage you to go back and uh, and reread that. It's a good read, Exodus chapter 12. You'll find there that God had instructed through Moses and Aaron that every household should sacrifice a lamb without blemish, without defect, without spot, without wrinkle, a perfect lamb, and they should mark their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. And as the angel of the Lord passed through the city, striking every firstborn in the land, he, God, would pass over the homes that bore the blood of the sacrificed lamb. That's where we get the Passover. God would pass over those homes that bore the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Jesus is now heading into Jerusalem to celebrate God's saving act on behalf of his people. Jesus was headed along with what Jewish historians account for probably two million other Jewish people headed to Jerusalem to celebrate God's work. Jesus is coming to celebrate the Passover, but much more than that, Jesus is coming to be the Passover lamb for his people. Not only is Jesus coming to celebrate, but celebrate, but Jesus, the ultimate lamb without spot or blemish or wrinkle or defect, will be crucified there in Jerusalem. He is the ultimate Passover lamb for all who would believe. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to die. That was his purpose from the beginning. That was Jesus' stated purpose from the beginning. It was for this very reason that Jesus divested himself of heaven's glory, took on human flesh, and became a man. John chapter 1, verse 14. He came as a suffering servant who would give himself as a sacrifice for sin. Remember, we studied Mark 10, 45, just a handful of weeks back. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give himself as a sacrifice for sin. And the timing was all precise, friends. Everything was happening right on schedule. The day and the hour had been determined from eternity past. Every step of Jesus' life was calculated and premeditated. Every step has been with unwavering resolve, a step toward the cross, and no power of hell or scheme of man could interrupt the process or make Jesus forego his redemptive plan. Like clockwork, everything is happening. In God's sovereign, divine plan. 
Jesus and the throng of travelers are now within about two miles of Jerusalem. Remember, we were in Jericho last week, about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. I mentioned that the Jericho road that headed from uh, Jericho and to Jerusalem was a was a mighty trek. It was an arduous road. Uh, it climbed up a lot of elevation, a lot of steep switchback turns and cliffs, loose rocks, jagged rocks. It was a difficult journey. But now Jesus is within about two miles of Jerusalem. We aren't exactly sure uh, the whereabouts of Bethphage. It's likely a suburb of Jerusalem. We all know what a suburb of a, of a larger city is, and that's probably what Bethphage was, likely a suburb of Jerusalem. But we know that Bethany is the small town just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus had, had visited Bethany many times before. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus would oftentimes uh, stay in Bethany when he visited Jerusalem. And so everyone in Bethany would have known exactly who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, it was just about three weeks prior, just about three weeks earlier that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead there in Bethany. Uh, turn over, if you have a second there, uh, turn over to John chapter 12. Keep, keep your finger there in, in Mark 11. And turn over to John chapter 12. Look specifically at verses 17 and 18. John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. John writes these words, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So just three weeks prior, Jesus had had been in and around Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and now he's back. And so you can imagine the chatter as Jesus again approaches Bethany. It probably would have sounded something like this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The one who raised Lazarus, he's here. He's here again. I mean, the excitement surrounding Jesus was high as he left Jericho, but as Jesus enters Bethany, the fever pitch of the crowd is amplified even more. He's here. He's here. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead. He's here. At this point, Jesus pulls two unnamed disciples. We don't know who they are. Uh, Two unnamed disciples. Aside, and he gives them instruction to go into the village, possibly Bethany, where they would find a colt tied. Now, let me pause right there. Uh, commentators speculate on how Jesus would have known that the colt would be tied in the village. Uh, some say that Jesus, in his omniscient knowledge, knew exactly. The colt would be there. That is certainly uh, a possibility. But the fact that the colt was tied seems to me as though, and this is not meant in any way to to detract from Jesus' divinity. Completely divine, 100% God, 100% man. Very God of very God, very man of very man. If you want a, a big word for that, it's called the hypostatic union. The fact that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, how all that comes colliding together is a mystery to us, just as we sang this morning, but it's not a mystery to God. God knows exactly how man and God coalesce in the person and work of Jesus. 
But it's very likely that this had been prearranged. Jesus had probably prearranged, perhaps by himself or with some other disciples, that a cult would be there. He tells some other, two other unnamed disciples to go and to fetch the cult that had been prearranged to be there. We also know that the cult had never been ridden. Well, what are we to make of that? Or what does that mean? Or does it mean anything? I would tell you that the fact that the cult has never been ridden likely points us to the fact that it's suitable for holy purposes. Suitable for holy purposes. And so Jesus pulls these two unnamed disciples. He gives them instructions to go into this, to, to the village, possibly Bethany, where they find a cult likely prearranged that had never been ridden, suitable for holy pur- purposes. And when those disciples find the cult... Jesus' disciples were to untie it, and if they were asked, why are you doing this, which is a good question, by the way, right? I mean, if you go out in the backyard and someone is untying your colt, you're probably going to have a question or two. Like, hey, bro, what's going on here? What are you doing? Jesus instructed these two unnamed disciples to simply respond by saying, the Lord has need of it. Uh, This, to me, looks a little bit like lock and key. Uh, Again, uh, making me think that this was probably prearranged. Jesus had probably told the owner of the cult, I'm going to send some of my disciples, and you'll know that they are my disciples and not just two random individuals. When you ask the question, what are you doing, and they respond with the key, the Lord has need of it, you'll know that they are my disciples. That's how you'll know. That's, that's the key uh, to the lock here. That's how you'll know that they are my disciples. And so these two disciples, they enter into the village just as Jesus had instructed. They find the colt just as Jesus said they would. They're untying it and they're asked this question, what are you doing? Just as Jesus said they would be asked this question. And they reply, just as Jesus had instructed them, the Lord has need of it. And there they go, trekking back to Jesus with the colt on which no one has ever sat. Now, can you imagine the conversation between these two disciples as they're heading back to Jesus with this cult. It's like, this happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen. Like, we said Jesus has need of it, and they let us have it, just like Jesus said they would. I mean, I can just imagine the conversation, the banter back and forth as these disciples are walking back to Jesus. The events happened just as Jesus said they would. And when they brought the colt back to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, and he, Jesus, set on the colt. Now, why a colt? Why? Why this particular animal? Why, why not a donkey? Uh, why not some other animal? What is the significance of a colt? Well, if you're anything like me, this doesn't seem like the mode of transportation that is fit for a king It doesn't appear to signify anything triumphant. You would think a a white steed with a perfectly combed mane that that trots, you know, perfectly. Not a a, a mere colt. I think there are two clear reasons why Jesus made his grand appearance in Jerusalem riding on the back of a common colt. The first reason is the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy You see, the colt told who Jesus was. The colt told who Jesus was. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Zechariah had had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding in on the colt of a donkey. 
Let's get those walking fingers ready again. Keep your place there in uh, Mark chapter 11. Turn over to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. I want you to see this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet Zechariah, Zechariah writes this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember, Jesus told his disciples just one chapter ago, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. I mean, Jesus had just said that one chapter ago to his disciples. We're going to Jerusalem, and everything that the Old Testament prophets have prophesied about the coming Messiah will come to fruition. Here's one of them. Zechariah 9.9. The king, the coming Messiah, will come riding in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is sovereignly in control, ensuring that every prophetic I is dotted and every prophetic T is crossed. But there's a second reason that Jesus chooses a cult, I'm persuaded. Zechariah actually made mention of this in his prophecy. He said, your king is coming, here's the word, humble and mounted on a donkey. You see, the cult told not only of who Jesus was, his identity, but it told what Jesus was like, his character. Who Jesus is, his identity, but also who Jesus is like, his character. How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry that people were very aware of in Jesus' day. Ancient warriors and conquerors and kings you see, this time no wall was broken down for, for the king's entry. This time no garlanded hero was standing in his war chariot being driven down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars, followed by captive kings and princes in chains. And look who we've conquered and look at the spoils of war. Praise me, praise me all you people. I mean, that's... That's what the people were used to when the king would return. But this is a much different picture here in the text. When King Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, not on a white steed with the spoils of war behind him, but on a humble colt bringing salvation. I love that. I absolutely love that. The cult is representative of Jesus' humility. Remember Paul reminds us, speaking about Jesus, he made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. You see, the cult reminds us that Jesus, our Prince of Peace, is our servant king. He's our servant king. He is a conquering warrior, but he's our servant king. Friends, there is going to be, and I need to remind you, another entry. 
Jesus' arrival, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem here is very humble. But he will enter again. He will enter again and his second entry will be glorious. In absolute glorious splendor. He'll come with justice and might. The Apostle John writes of Jesus' return in Revelation chapter 19. I've asked you to do some turning already, so just listen to the text here. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. The Apostle John writes this. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Think about the contrast here of Jesus riding into Jerusalem now. He's coming, and he's coming in judgment, and he will make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His second entry will be glorious, but it will be with just judgment. Friends, his first entry was with servant-hearted humility, but his second entry will bring justice and wrath. Jesus stands ready to save and to deliver you today. But if you refuse to submit yourself to him by repentance and faith, he will not deliver you. He will destroy you. Just let that settle in for a moment. I'm just a messenger. But I make no apologies. God has spoken. He has spoken abundantly clear. He has given warning after warning after warning to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from your wondering, to turn from going your own way, and to turn to Jesus, our Redeemer, the captain of our salvation, our humble servant king who was crucified on Calvary's cross as the ultimate Passover lamb. Friends, if you are not clothed, covered in the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, covered by faith and repentance, then God Almighty will not pass over you. He'll destroy you. I beg you, if you're here this morning, young, old, and anywhere in between, Just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he said, I beg you, some of your translations use the word implore, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
You can be justified, righteous before a holy God by faith in the Lord Jesus and by faith in the Lord Jesus alone. Well, here we see in the first seven verses preparation for the parade. Write this down if you're taking notes. Number two on your outline is this praise for the king. Praise for the king. Look at verse 8 there in your Bible. Mark writes this, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. I mean, if you have the ability uh, to just uh, kind of close your eyes for a moment and put yourself in, in the time and place, if you, can, if you can put yourself there and imagine the scene, here is Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who upholds the universe by the very word of his power, and he's seated on a humble colt with literally hundreds of thousands of people lining the road with their garments. Never before has Jesus done anything to promote a public demonstration. As a matter of fact, Jesus has gone to great lengths to to quell any public demonstration in the past. He's gone to great lengths to keep his ministry relatively silent, oftentimes even withdrawing from the crowds. But word about Jesus is traveling fast. I mean, it's not every day that someone comes along who turns water into wine. It's not every day that someone comes along who commands an unclean spirit to to leave a man. And by the very power of his word, that's exactly what happens. It's not every day that someone comes along and heals a paralytic. It's not every day that someone comes along who claims to forgive sin. It's not every day that someone comes along who's able to feed 5,000 people with just five barley loaves and a couple fish. You see, as Jesus traveled and ministered, he became somewhat of an icon. Word about Jesus has gone viral. Matter of fact, Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus went through all, uh, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout the, the region. His fame spread. Not only had Jesus healed diseases and sicknesses all throughout Israel, not only had he performed miracle after miracle, but he had also taught in such a way that those who heard him were left absolutely astonished and amazed. Remember, who is this man? He's unlike our, our teachers. He's unlike our scribes. He's unlike the learned religious leaders of our day. He left people flat astounded when he taught. Excitement surrounding the ministry of Jesus was already high, and to add to the buzz, Jesus again is entering into the same city where just three weeks prior, he had raised a man from the dead. By the way, it's very likely, it is probable that Lazarus is among the people heading to Jerusalem. So it's not only here is Jesus, here is Jesus, he's he's here, he's here, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, but it's like, hey, there's Lazarus. It's amazing. This Sunday, Jesus seems to invite public attention, and all eyes are on him. All eyes are on him. Are yours? Are yours? Keep in mind here, the people aren't looking for a sin bearer. The people aren't looking for a redeemer. They're looking for a political king. They're looking for one who would ride in and free them from Rome's heavy-handed, oppressive rule. They know that Jesus is a miracle worker. 
And every pious Jewish person would have been very familiar with Zechariah's prophecy that their king would come in riding on the colt of a donkey. And so as the enthusiasm mounts and the excitement surges, the people are undoubtedly thinking again, this is him, this is him, this is him, this is our king. Now is the time he's going to inaugurate the kingdom and free us from Rome. And so what do they do? Look at the text again. They begin to throw their cloaks on the ground in front of him. What are they doing? Well, they're making a royal carpet. They're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, for Jesus. What's the significance of, uh, of this mass of people divesting themselves of their clothing and spreading out their cloaks on the road? Well, I think it was relatively genuine. Matter of fact, I think it was a gesture of reverence and submission. In essence, the people were saying, take everything that we have. We gladly place ourselves under your rule. Getting low in the presence of, king, of a king is symbolic of submission to his majesty and authority. We've probably all seen a movie before where, where a subject or a, a, a lesser, lower person walks into the king's chambers. And what's the first thing they do? They take a knee. Which is just in reverence. It says, you are king and I am subject. You have authority and I don't. You are exalted and I am not. It's interesting to note that we see a familiar thing, or a similar thing, rather, taking place back in uh, the book of 2 Kings. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we read of Jehu's anointing as king of Israel. We read this in verse 13, just give me your ears here. Then in haste, every man took off his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So Take that. 2 Kings, and transpose that back on to what's taking place here. People are divesting themselves of their cloaks, laying it down on the road in reverence and submission, saying, Jesus is our king. The problem is, is he's not the king they're anticipating. He's not the king they're wanting. Their expectations are woefully wrong. You see, Jesus has not come to slay their oppressors. He has come to save sinners. Has he saved you? Has he saved you? Look at verse 9. Mark writes, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke adds this in Luke's parallel account here. As he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so we're, we're nearing Jerusalem here, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, Jesus and the following entourage, they, they have made the ascent up, they've made the, the climb, the trek up the Mount of Olives, they've reached its summit, and now they begin the descent down the hill and into Jerusalem. And, and as, they, as they crest the mountain's small peak, the panorama of the entire city of Jerusalem would have filled their view. Here's what you would have seen if you were there. There in front of you would have been the city wall in the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And then like a diamond in the setting of a ring stood Herod's magnificent temple overlooking the city. 
At this very moment, hundreds of thousands of people who have been following Jesus from Jericho are met with hundreds of thousands of people who are coming out of Jerusalem, and they all meet here on the backside of the Mount of Olives, facing this city. John's account of this story tells us the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming. So you got Jesus and and all, all the entourage coming from Jericho. And then John tells us that all the people that had come to the feast, they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took palm branches and tr- or the, or the, the, the uh, branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And here's where the excitement reaches its crescendo as the mass of people break into song singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This praise is very fitting. It's very fitting praise. As a matter of fact, what the people are, are, are saying here is they're quoting Psalm 118.26. The people are quoting Psalm 118.26, which is actually an enthronement psalm. It reads, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was oftentimes used when a king was installed or a king was enthroned in a place of power and authority. Luke, Luke's gospel leaves this out, but the other three gospels, including Mark here, write that the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Two separate times you see that in our text. Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us now, save us now. Save us, King Jesus. Unfortunately, the multitude encircling Jesus with ardent words of praise are praising nothing more than a fantasy of their own making. They're worshiping a Jesus, a king of their own imagining. And oh, how sad it is that the same is true today. How sad it is that so, so many in our, in our world have created a God in their own image, a Jesus of their own liking, and they worship him. Really, all they worship is themselves because the Jesus they've created looks just like them, talks just like them, thinks just like them, walks just like them. There are countless people who worship a Jesus of their own making, a Jesus that is just like your golden retriever. He loves you unconditionally, he protects you, and he comes when you call. But that's not the Jesus we see in the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is a humble servant, but he is also a master. He's a master. His call is clear. We studied this in Mark 8.34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily and follow me. Remember, that's that's not a suggestion. That That is a command. Follow me is an imperative. It is a command. Mark's gospel omits this as we're studying here. But Luke records the crowd as adding a, a praise chorus here. In Luke's account, we read, we, we, we read of the, the crowd adding peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And then peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar? 
Let your mind kind of catalog back here for a second. Where else have you heard language like that? Where else have you heard language like that? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, it sounds familiar because it sounds a whole lot like the song of another multitude. It sounds a whole lot like the host of angels who announced at Christ's birth and exclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All the commotion has garnered Jesus not only the attention of the multitudes, but it's also garnered Jesus the attention of the Pharisees as well. Mark's gospel doesn't tell us here, but if we're, this is what I'm trying to do here with the text, is kind of synthesize uh, the, the gospels. So taking this particular account as it uh, is given to us in the synoptic gospels and to synthesize it. And so Mark omits it here. Mark doesn't give us this particular piece of information, this specific detail. But Luke does. Luke writes, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Jesus, tell everyone to be quiet. And Jesus answered, this is familiar, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The rocks would cry out. You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus. To the Pharisees, Jesus was nothing more than a blasphemer who went around stirring up all the people. They wanted him dead. Matthew tells us that, that the chief priests and the elders didn't want to disrupt the celebration, so they planned to kill Jesus after the Passover concluded. We learned that in Matthew chapter 26. But Jesus, what does he do here? Jesus forces the issue. I love this. Okay? Here you have the chief priests and the elders. They want to keep everything tidy. It's all a show, remember? And so they don't want to disrupt the celebration, so they just plan to take Jesus out after the Passover celebration. But Jesus steps right up and he forces the issue. Not only did he claim to be God, but now in the streets of Jerusalem, he is accepting worship that is due to God alone. You want it? Come get it. Come get it. The Pharisees knew they couldn't do anything to quiet the crowd. That would be like walking out to the 50-yard line of the Super Bowl and saying, shh, shh. It's useless. Their only hope of quieting the enraptured multitude was to entreat Jesus to silence them. But how does Jesus respond, at least in in the other Gospels here, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus looks at the chief priest, he looks at the Pharisees, and he says, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, if they are silenced, I command the power to raise up inanimate objects to complete the task. That's the Jesus we serve. Jesus is making crystal clear in his declaration that he is the Messiah who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. And I think this is, uh, this is for another day. We can talk about it later. Maybe we'll preach through Matthew's gospel in the future here. But I think we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words. Remember, if, if the crowds are silent... The stones would cry out. The rocks would cry out. Well, I think we see a fulfillment of that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, where after Jesus' crucifixion, 
Matthew writes this, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. I think at that moment, the rocks were crying out. How different was the vision of the future in the people's minds? They dreamed of a throne, but Jesus knew that it was a cross. Jesus knew the superficiality of their worship. Many of the multitude, as a matter of fact, who were in the crowd uh, chanting, bless him, bless him, bless him, Hosanna, Hosanna, would just four days later stand in a similar crowd and cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, Jesus would finish this procession on another street lined with people, struggling to carry a wooden cross up a hill on which he would lay himself down on that cross and die. You see, we refer to this as Palm Sunday, but that's not originally what it was called. The Sunday before Passover was known as Lamb Selection Day. Just as throngs of people were flooding into Jerusalem from all over Israel, hundreds of thousands of lambs were being brought into Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. Matter of fact, Josephus, a a Jewish historian, wrote that in one census, over 250,000 lambs were brought into Jerusalem. That's one for every ten people. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem literally surrounded by lambs. And just four days later, as those lambs were being sacrificed in celebration of Passover, on the other side of town, hanging on a cross, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that your Jesus? All right, following him. Number three, and we'll be brief here. I think we see the pierced heart of a Savior. The pierced heart of a Savior. Mark ends the account of the triumphal entry rather abruptly. He simply writes in verse 11, look there in your Bible. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. We'll find out next week what he finds there and how he responds. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that's how Mark leaves his account here. But Luke, on the other hand, why don't you go ahead and turn over and you can stay in Luke for the reign of our time together. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Look at verses 41 through 44. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Luke gives us a much more solemn conclusion to the story. Chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Luke writes this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, friends, I think what we see here in Luke's account is we see that Jesus' heart absolutely ached over the lostness and the obstinate rebellion of his people. 
It wasn't that long ago before Jesus stood before another crowd and his heart was broken. We see it back in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Splanknizomai is the Greek word. To literally be turned, wrenched in your bowels. To have your insides absolutely just inverted. Compassion is how it's translated. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so I think here with the panorama of Jerusalem absolutely filling Jesus' eyes, Jesus was overwhelmed with grief. His heart was pierced through. Amidst all the cheers of the procession came tears, the king's tears. His people have rejected him. John reminds us in in John chapter 1 verse 29 that Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And so what did Jesus see here? Well, Jesus saw the hearts of rebellious people. He saw the proud, the unrepentant city smoldering in a pile of rubble that had been drenched with blood. And the passage says that, 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 that Jerusalem had rejected her king, and so she was destroyed. And in AD 70, within just one generation of Jesus' words here, we see a picture that is far from peace on earth as Rome absolutely decimated Jerusalem. Friends, the humble servant king that we see here in Mark 11 calls all men everywhere to repent. Are you worshiping and following the Jesus of the Bible? Or are you among the crowd that has created a Jesus in your own image, a Jesus of your own liking? There is salvation in no one else. for There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Have you come to Jesus in humble faith and repentance, declaring that apart from his imputed righteousness, apart from his perfect life being credited to your account, you're absolutely bankrupt and destitute, and you are headed headlong for condemnation. There is salvation. There is forgiveness of sins. There is perfect righteousness in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's authoritative, that it's sufficient, that it contains everything that we need. It is everything that we need for life and godliness this side of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would take this uh, triumphal entry uh, story and you would massage it into the hearts of your people, that you would bring specific application exactly where it needs to be applied. And uh, Lord, that you would edify your church as the result of its preaching. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.